The writer to the Hebrews wrote in chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. But it can be hard to do this, especially during this time of Advent, when instead it seems that we are surrounded by a cloud of advertisers, a cloud of materialists, even a cloud of hypocrites, though I'm not pointing fingers. How can we prepare ourselves for Christmas? Well, that's what we'll talk today about on Deep in Scripture. Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host for this program with Jim Anderson. Good afternoon, everyone. Let's take some time to examine ourselves in relationship to our preparation to Christmas. We've got, in the next two weeks, three weeks, two of the biggest celebrations of the year, of course, Christmas and New Year's. And we're in the middle of Advent. And as I mentioned in the opening, even though all of us know essentially what this season's all about, and we may have goals to maybe this year to celebrate this season in a way better than we've ever done before, it's increasingly more and more difficult because of the culture we live in. I heard in another radio broadcast they were bemoaning the fact and how material things had gotten, and they were remembering how things used to be, but I also heard one of the callers on that program bemoan the fact that they could never remember a Christmas in their lifetime that hadn't been materialistic. And and there's a sense in that's true. Most of us, at least from, let's say, my age down, (laughs) have never lived at a time when Christmas has not taken on the flavor of materialism. And is it worse today than before? Well, probably in some ways. Part of it is because there's so much more media letting us know about the materialism on radio and television and DVDs and CDs. There's also more things, right, Jim? I mean, Egad, we didn't have the uh, electronics available that are there today. When and you and each I were year kids. there's going to be a new type of electronics. And I was just hearing this week that our electronics we're getting have built in, um, they're, they're outmoded. Yeah. They, they won't last. They can't even be repaired. They're throwaways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it used to, day that, used to be that there were small shops for, for fixing small electronics. Well, just throw them out just replace it with something else you can buy at discount. How many old cell phones do you have in your drawers at home? But how do we cut through all that and, and try and prepare our hearts and our families to receive anew the meaning of Christmas in our life? How do we prepare ourselves? And so Jim and I, as we prepared for this program, decided we'd look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 17. Now Jim always gives me a hard time for picking up too much to cover in an hour long. He's usually right. And this week is no (laughs) exception. I mean, there's no way we can cover all 17 verses in detail. So admittedly, we're not going to examine this text in an exegetical word-for-word, phrase-by-phrase detail. And unapologetically, we really don't need to do that. I mean, reality is when Paul wrote his letters, it wasn't for many hundreds of years before they were analyzed in a in a common way by Christians 
word for word, phrase for phrase. There were certainly early fathers that did that occasionally, and Jim usually quotes them in his letter, in his mm-hmm. special notes. But even they, when they started doing that, they were separated from Paul by several hundreds of years. Have to keep in mind, yes, Paul was an apostle, and his words were authority, but when you get a, a letter from your bishop do you analyze and exegete every phrase that he writes? <laughs> no, and they didn't back then either. No, they would reread the letters in the churches, pass them around, copies, because they didn't have Xeroxes in those days. They were hand copied. And part of the problem in the early church after a hundred or so years with all these letters that were being passed around and read in the churches is that there were other letters supposedly written by the apostles, but had questionable uh, authenticity. And so the question arose, which of these letters that we're reading in liturgy that are being passed around and read in liturgy are to be considered authoritative and inspired? And that's when the church in the late 300s at a council decided which of the New Testament books were to be considered authentic and inspired and which ones weren't. The point is that when they heard Philippians, they would hear it in one piece. And so the intent was for us to listen to these verses and then to respond. We can, in fact, become distracted by digging into them and miss the point of what they're trying to say. And so what we'd like to do in this program is to listen and then reflect on these verses and then ask ourselves, what is Paul trying to help us do in preparing ourselves for the reception of the Christ child at Christmas? Now, in these verses, Paul is specifically giving us an example of self-examination. In fact, this chapter 3, when you study the letter, seems to have been uh, a second thought, an addition. Paul was about ready, seemingly, to finish the letter at the end of chapter 2, probably originally intended to be a short letter. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not irksome to me, and it is safe for you. There's a sense in which it seemed that he was about ready to sign off. But then all of a sudden, he goes into this section that we're going to look at today. And he ends this section in verses 15, 16, and 17 with the reason and the purpose of this section. In verses 15, 16, and 17, he says something very important to us that reminds us why this section is important. Why don't you go ahead and read that, Jim? Let those of us who are mature be thus minded, and if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what has been attained. Brethren, join in imitating me, And mark those who so live as you have an example in us. Spiritual maturity, therefore, means submitting our wills and our conscience to the apostolic models that Jesus has given us. There's a a confusion out there, a misnomer, that maturity means standing on your own. And what Paul is saying is that The mature among us must recognize that in following Christ, we must follow those that he has given to us to model what it means 
to follow him. It isn't just up to ourselves to decide what Scripture means for us. Sometimes we get it right, but sometimes we can get it desperately wrong. Instead, he gave us models. He chose the apostles. One of those he chose later, Paul. And Paul, recognizing his responsibility as an apostle, a sent one, responsible to Christ, recognized that his calling in life was to show others how to follow Jesus. And so when we read this, we recognize, as he said, if you're mature. In other words, if you recognize your own inability to discern for yourself what is true, I have to recognize that, Mm -hmm. Jim, that we look to Paul to model for us how to follow Jesus. And that's what this section is about. But he also says not just to follow him, he said that join in imitating me and mark those who so live as you have an example in us. Now, who does that point to? It's not just Paul. Others who have also followed Paul successfully. It's it's like passing it on. You've got a, a mini version here of apostolic succession in lifestyle of Paul imitates Christ and his and Paul's followers imitate him. I think Timothy is the best example. Well, of, and a verse that we I think mentioned last week is Second Timothy chapter two, verse two, mm-hmm. in which Paul basically is telling Timothy this very issue. He says, What you have heard from me mm-hmm. before many witnesses, and trust a faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There we have the passing on of the model. That's called tradition. Paul tells us to hold fast to that tradition, that which we learn. Tradition isn't merely words. Tradition involves a lifestyle. It involves formed conscience. It involves making the right choices. And we are not left alone. And if we, by grace, are maturing in our faith in Christ, then we are also recognizing our need to be obedient to the models that Christ has given us. This is, uh, centuries later, is the same thing that St. Francis of Assisi was saying when he said that on earth Christ has no hands and feet but you. That's what we are. We are doing Christ's work. And um, when we are called to become Christ to the people around us, that's what we're supposed to be doing, is, is imaging Paul and St. Francis, and all the other great saints. When he says, imitate me, it isn't an arrogant statement. No. It's a statement of humility. Now, we have to be careful when we say that. Because when we look at ourselves, do we, do we see ourselves as a, a model that's worth imitating? And that's part of the question that I'd like us to examine in this program as we prepare ourselves with this cloud of advertisers around us that are giving us a thousand other ways to imitate, a thousand other ways to jump on the bandwagon. And it's easier to go that wide path because everybody else around us is doing that. But the path that Christ calls us to follow, as he mentioned in the sermon, is a narrow path, a path that's more difficult, that requires challenges, and so he gives us models. Now, these verses that we just read are the closure of this longer section because is it in verses 2 through 14, in which Paul 
gives us the model we are to follow. And it is a model of self-examination, of self-honesty, of maturity. And it's basically broken into four sections. Verses 2 and 3, we hear a warning against those who are trying to pollute the true faith in Christ. We have a few of those today. Sometimes they're on the airwaves. Sometimes they're in churches around the corner. Sometimes they're in print. Sometimes they're in advertising. Sometimes they're in the stores. But he gives us a warning to be careful. Number two, in verses four through six, we see Paul's self-examination and his testimony of what was behind in his life, his past. Because frankly, he was one of those false teachers. Number three, verses seven through 11, we see his evaluation of his past and is then his testimony to what lies ahead, his hope for the future, where he recognizes his life is headed. And then part four, the one thing that he and we need to do in humility as we face the future. And that's in verse 12 through 14. That one thing that we need to do in life. And that's not just for the rest of our life. I mean, it is, but we particularly mean now in Advent as we prepare for the holidays. And so the first section is a warning against those who are trying to pollute the true faith in Christ. St. Paul writes to the Philippians, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the, fl- the flesh. For we are the true circumcision, who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Here St. Paul's referring to the false teachers, the Judaizers, Christians who refuse to listen to the voice of the church. I'll explain that, because a lot of people may not realize that that's who the Judaizers really were. Yes. They were Jewish Christians who had faith in Jesus Christ, but they believed that not only they, but all Gentiles who became Christians that the men should be circumcised, that they should follow the Mosaic dietary laws and all these 600 and some ceremonial laws, as well as the moral laws of Judaism. And the Council of Jerusalem, about nine years before this letter had been written, Peter and also James, who was the bishop of Jerusalem at that time, but Peter led the council, had said no, They need to lead moral lives, but Gentiles who become Christians do not have to submit to the Jewish ceremonial laws. And this council had clarified this and sent letters out to Antioch to calm the people because these people had stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest over this controversy. And the Jewish Christians questioned the authority of the church because this is nine years later. The council had spoken, and these traditionalist Jewish uh, leaders refused to listen to the voice of the church because the church had changed its tradition. This had been the way it had always been done. You can't change what's been done. Moses said that that the rite of circumcision would be for all eternity. How dare you say that it has changed? And this puts us in mind of some people in our day and age, since a later council that occurred some 40 years ago, who says the council doesn't have the authority to change that. Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit and apostolic authority, yes. If the 
Council of Jerusalem could abolish circumcision, which had been practiced for 1,800 years, uh, yes, councils have the authority to change practice. And that's, it's such an important issue that we've got to think of, especially you Catholics listening, that we have. There are Catholics that deny the authority of the council, even deny the authority of our present pope and the last couple of popes, and because they didn't like the changes. Now, granted, there are a few changes in the last 40 years I'm not really happy about, but I trust the authority of the church. And when you don't trust the authority of the church to make changes that the church, being led by the Spirit, believes it has the right to do, then you're like these Judaizers that were trying to make the early Gentile converts go through all the same rituals that the Jews used to have to do in the old days before the Jerusalem Council. They insisted that salvation came through strict obedience to the ritual laws of circumcision and the other external physical criteria, or Paul used the word, the flesh. They were putting all of their emphasis on salvation comes through these external expressions of the faith. They were downplaying the need of the internal conversion, emphasizing the external. Now that doesn't negate the external. Well, that's exactly right, because Paul's going to go there. In the second part of this section, Paul looks at himself, his self-examination, and the testimony of what was behind his life and his past. And when we come back, we'll look at verses 4 through 6, where Paul admits that he has been guilty of the same claims to ritual obedience. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Jim Anderson and I are looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 17, and we're reflecting on this to encourage you, and as Jim and I, even ourselves, are looking at preparing ourselves for Christmas and New Year's, making sure that maybe this year we, we celebrate it in, in, in the way that is appropriate so that we can more effectively receive Christ into our life at Christmas time. We've looked at Paul's warning about the false teachers around us and then now he looks, though, at himself. See, we're not called just to judge others in that sense, stand back and criticize those folk because we look at ourselves and realize that to a certain extent we too are guilty. And in this section, verses 4 through 6, St. Paul admits that he himself was one of these he ought to know. I'll read from verse 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, Paul's admitting of his life before he was a Christian that he was obedient in every way that he knew that he needed to be, to that way of obeying God. And he recognized, though, very quickly in his own conversion, which he's knocked off the horse, the scales fall from his eyes later, he's baptized, and he recognizes, as he admits many times in his letters, that salvation does not come primarily through works. In other words, it isn't in those external expressions of ritualistic obedience that is primarily in our surrender to Jesus Christ. And through Paul's conversion to Christ, 
he had recognized the flaw in his theology. Now, he wasn't saying that these things in themselves were evil and were to be rejected, but these things in themselves will not save someone. They could be good or they could get in the way of someone, depending on where a person's heart was. And before you go on, let me say that's really important to hear because we have especially a lot of Christian traditions, especially since the Reformation, Mm -hmm. that have taken the complete other side of things. And they interpret Paul and then use their interpretation of Paul to put a grid on really anything that Jesus taught as well as what Paul taught to imply that all these things that had been misused were to be thrown out. And that's not what Paul is saying. What he is saying is that there were a reason for these at that time, but now they are fulfilled in Christ and they gain their meaning from Jesus. Our focus not on to do these things so that we earn God's approval, but to focus on Christ if we still do these things. Yes. Anything in our walk with Christ, if we do it out of the motivation that once we've done it, God owes us, we've lost any reason for having done them. God never owes us anything for anything we do. Paul had said this elsewhere. Jim, want to go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In this, Paul is saying, we are saved through grace in grace through faith. Though good works don't save us, we shouldn't boast about them, but we are saved so that we can do them. So anyone who says, I'm saved by faith, I don't have to do good works, has never read Ephesians 8 through 10 and understood what it said. You know, and, and good works is so misunderstood. Yes, Paul sets aside the requirement of circumcision. And that is a difficult requirement in the early church because you have Gentile adults coming into the church. Well, what do you do? It's different if you're an eight-year-old boy. But if you're, well, a, I think an eight-year-old boy would probably excuse me. Too. I'm in an eight-day-year-old, <laughs> eight-day-old boy. But an eight-year-old, eight, you know, forty-year-old, you got a, a pretty major requirement. And the question is, is it really necessary? But that doesn't mean that the other aspects of the law that are basically showing justice to your neighbor. The Ten Commandments, being obedient to your mother and father, not killing, not lying, reaching out in love, all those other aspects of the law are included in this statement because Paul says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's two sides to that. Part of that is the specific good works that God created for you in your life, but there's also the tradition of the faith that he has given us beforehand, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the lives of the church, the models we've been given that model for us 
what it means to live out our faith. And this is done by God to enrich our lives, to make it easier for us to follow him so that we have a pattern of living. It's not meant as this great burden that we are to be laid down upon our shoulders like this big bag of rocks. It's to help us, to guide us, and to liberate us. And in many ways, that's what Paul is meaning when he is referring to the mature among us. Those who've recognized that, who've broken free from this oppressive view of obedience to God, servile fear, and have matured into filial fear, Mm -hmm. loving God as a son and a daughter, and recognizing the need to be obedience out of respect and awe of God. Well, Paul had admitted that if it was sufficient to do these things and have these things done to you to demonstrate your obedience to God, then there was no one greater than him. But God knocked him out of his horse and helped him see Jesus. And so that wasn't sufficient. And so in part three of this, in verses 7 through 11, he evaluates his past and then gives a testimony to what lies ahead and his hope for the future. He goes on to say, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I'm always amused by this particular translation. Well, let me first say, there's so much in this that it would be exciting and, and, and powerful to look at it word by word, phrase by phrase, because there's so much great stuff in this text that we're studying today. Me, yes. but, but I'm am- always amused by, he counts them as refuse. Well, the actual Greek is... Manure. Manure, you know, and I live on a farm and I've got cows everywhere and... Um, you know, I know what that's like. That's what he's talking about. But, Jim, why did he consider these things manure, a loss? All these things, is he saying, therefore, that's all they're worth? No, he's saying that for him, because for him in his life, they had become his God. They had become his goal in his life, and they got in the way between him and Christ. God had to get them out of the way so that Paul could see Christ. And he needed his priorities straightened. My boys, every year, we have a big hill down the front of our house. And every year when the snow comes, and it's coming soon, they build a ramp. And every year it gets scarier and scarier. You know, one of these days my kids are going to do themselves in. Uh, but they, they get that ramp. Especially with the trees at the bottom of the exactly. hill. Exactly. They, they stop before they hit the creek. But... They, they go airborne, and they, they can fly 10 feet in the air. And that little ramp is sufficient for that. But let's say they thought that that little ramp could get them to heaven. No, that ramp isn't going to get them to heaven. It is insufficient for that. It's refuse. It is a distraction. If they think by doing that, it'll get them to space. Well, no, it isn't sufficient for that. 
our good works in themselves, if we think by doing them that we will earn our way to heaven, that's a distraction. We're poorly focused. We're misunderstanding the purpose of the works God has given to us. But there's a mystery there because in our obedience is what it takes to please God. But it comes by grace, and that's the key. And that's why for Paul they were a distraction, a false hope. In fact, in what sense were they a bold, false but bold assurance for those people at the time? Yeah, because they thought God owed them. I am a Jew. I have been circumcised. I follow the dietary laws and the, all the other laws. I count my, uh, my cumin and my dill. God, because I've done all this, owes me. And Paul's saying, no. God doesn't owe anyone anything. We are saved by grace through faith. And then these works have meaning, but only then. In a little bit, we'll, we'll evaluate how this applies to today. But why don't we move on? What, let's look at what has become St. Paul's goals in Christ and what lies ahead. In this section, as he evaluated his past and said that his past was a distraction it was as refuse in comparison to his journey to Christ. He then set some goals. Verse 8, and he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This reminds us of Jesus' warning in Matthew seven twenty-one through 23, where all these people come before Christ at the last judgment and say, Lord, Lord, I cast out demons in your names. I healed the sick. I did all these things in your name. And Jesus said, I never knew you. His goal then is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's just not knowing of him, being able to recite all kinds of facts about Jesus, but that's knowing him. Another way it's commonly said is a, a personal relationship with Jesus. This is one, one good thing that our evangelical brothers and sisters have it the nail right on the head. Ideally, what, that's what we're called to do. Know Jesus in a personal level, not know things about him. Uh, you're very fond of saying and going through your Lutheran conveyor belt growing up, you knew all sorts of facts about Jesus. But it wasn't until you were, what, a sophomore in college that you actually knew him. That's right. Came to know him. Of course, the first thing that I realized in my adult reconversion was how little I knew about Jesus. I could have written a book about what I'd been taught about Jesus, but I didn't know him. And so, as Paul says here, that becomes his goal, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Then in verse 8 and 9, he goes on to say, for this sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This reminds us of the oft-mentioned phrase to be in Christ or to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ. You almost get the image of, of, camp, of uh, pitching a tent and living in his living room. That's what Christ wants us to do. He wants us to live in him, breathe his very air. Another way, then, of knowing him. That's what it means, an intimacy. But you have to hear the hesitancy 
in which Paul mentions this. He says that in order that I may gain Christ. There's not an arrogant, bold assurance here that we sometimes hear today when people say, I was saved once and I'm saved always, doesn't even matter how I live. No, Paul recognizes that there's a a journey yet ahead for him. In verses 10 through 11, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. St. Paul here is expressing a hope, but not a bold assurance or arrogance that I'm saved and there's nothing that can keep me from attaining heaven. He's going, no, I know me. I trust in God. He will always be faithful, but will I? And even St. Paul is show, is expressing here that he's not totally sure of himself. Yeah, it, it, that's so key. It's not that Paul was in despair, that he was having anxiety about it. Christ says, I have no anxiety about anything. But it's an issue of hope. Paul knew where he was right at that moment in Christ by grace through faith. When he That quote from Ephesians that Jim read earlier that talks about that we are saved by grace through faith. And he means that now. But he also know that he has not yet arrived, that he must continue to press on. And so there's always this cautionary that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, that if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Why would Paul say if possible unless he realizes that it's a gift of grace and that it requires still his aspect of this obedience? Sometimes it angers me when I hear some Christian preachers and teachers that promote this once saved, always saved in such a bold way that they think they know better what Jesus taught than Paul. As if they, Paul had it kind of close, but I've come to a superior understanding of what Jesus really meant. As if Paul was wrong, implying that there's a whole part of Scripture that is not inspired. But the truth is, Paul, in all that he recognized in the grace of Jesus Christ, though recognized that in the mystery of our walk with Christ, there is a part of it that we must do. And that brings us to the fourth section. For he says that there is one thing that he and we must do in humility as we face the future. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had ma- has made me his own. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Boy, there's so much in this section to go through. But I want you to hear again something that he says. Paul admits, though we know from all the other places he writes, his great assurance in Christ Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He says that boldly. But in verse 12 he says, not that I have already obtained this 
or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ Jesus has made me his own. The two sides there. It is a present reality that Christ Jesus had made him his own. That's a present reality. But now the rest of his life, by grace, is to make it his own, which is true for you and I. Christ Jesus, if, if we've surrendered to Christ by faith and been baptized, receiving the graces of the sacrament, then Christ Jesus has made you and me his own. That is a present reality that we can claim. But that does not, therefore, set aside the fact that for the rest of our life, by grace, we now must make it our own. We need to live and abide in Christ. Paul is reaffirming one of the most difficult statements that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Many people that hang their hat on Paul, well, particularly their interpretation of Paul, and then sometimes truncate what Jesus says. They want to truncate this particular statement away. And they say that our perfection, quote, our justification, our righteousness is a gift from Christ that covers our imperfection. Or in fact, Jesus says that we are to become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And Paul recognizes that in that call. But he admits humbly that he's not arrived there yet. And so he begins, after he looked at his past and how that was a distraction, and he sets before him the goal, he begins by facing himself with honesty and humility, recognizing that perfection, our growth in perfection, is a process of grace. Yet he recognized that he was responsible for attaining this. There's that partnership that you and I share with Jesus Christ. He gives us the grace, not so that we can sit back on our spiritual lazy boy and just point to him as our Savior, but he gives us the grace so that with that help, we can be obedient. That's why he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but we are still called to produce fruit. And with that grace and the obedience that comes from that grace, Christ is then able to increase grace in us, and we continue to grow in grace throughout our lives. We don't just sit on our spiritual lazy boy, like you said. So what's that one thing, then, that Paul says here that we must do? It's in verse 13. We are to forget what lies behind, forgiving self as Christ has. We're to strain forward, pressing onward toward the goal. We keep striving forward. Did we mess up yesterday? Possibly. Repent and go on. Don't beat up on yourself. That's only counterproductive. There are so many Christians who see the perfection that God is calling them to and see their own sins, and they refuse to forgive themselves. Well, God has forgiven them. It behooves them to forgive them, too. Forgetting what lies behind, we strain forward. We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Not focusing on earning salvation, that's self-centered, but rather focusing on him, on the upward call, in loving obedience, imitating Jesus. That's our call in life. We'll come back in a moment, and we'll look at how this then 
can help us practically prepare for Christmas and New Year's. <laughs> Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Jim and I have been looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 17, just as an overview. And what we'd like to do is address the question, how can these scriptures help us practically prepare for Christmas and New Year's? And I include New Year's in that. It may not be a, a particularly spiritual holiday, but it can be. It can be that time. Well, there are spirits involved. Well, <laughs> that's true. But we can, uh, of recommitting ourselves. I've always looked at that, especially that week between Christmas and New Year's, as a reflective time. In many ways, that's the ideal time to think through all these things that we're looking at so that on that new year, you can commit yourself by grace to, to carry out some of these new commitments. The world calls them resolutions. Well, this is in many ways a recommitment of our faith and following Christ and what we've received at Christmas. But there's five things then that Paul gives us in this section that can help form a, a method, if you will, or a, a practical way of us moving forward in Christ. The first is that we've got to beware of the false witnesses around us, of getting called up in false hope. We can be blind to the fact that there are these false ways to God around us and we might be blind to the way that we bought into them. And some of them may look very enticing. How many people become so depressed at Christmas time because they cannot manufacture a Norman Rockwell Christmas in their house? The rest of the family just won't cooperate with them. And so, therefore, they, they become stressed out, they become frustrated, and they lose the whole meaning of the great feast of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus and they're caught up in trying to make this perfect holiday. Yeah, in fact, in, in, in light of the, the Judaizers of the time of Paul, there are those people that it's only the externals that is Christmas to them. Mm -hmm. And if you get all these externals right, then I'll feel better about myself. And Paul says that's refuse. Mm -hmm. That's a distraction. You're missing the point of Christmas. Okay, And we've got people around us that are more caught up in the externals without the meaning of what it's all about. And following Paul's lead, we're not calling you to throw out the externals. Don't throw out the Christmas tree or the, the wreath or the or the um, or or mistletoe. Especially the turkey. <laughs> or the, but, but what's the meaning behind it? Number two, he calls us to face up to the false goals, the distraction of our past. What has gotten in the past between you and God? What... Be honest with yourself. Could it be obvious things like drink or sex or money? Or is it just watching TV too much, ignoring your family, working too hard? And maybe you and I are as guilty as the others out there that think that the good feeling of Christmas and New Year's comes from the externals as opposed to the new life that it's all about in Jesus Christ. And in this time, we're to recommit ourselves to the true future in Christ. That there are several things that we are called to do to do this. That we may know him and be known by him. That we want Jesus at the last judgment to say, Welcome, good and faithful servant. I knew you and you knew me. That we may gain him and 
be found by him. God is always looking for us. We don't want to be running from him. The, the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, will be chasing us, but why not chase back? Go towards him. Call him. Call him into your life and let him, give him permission to, to be Lord of your life. Paul also said that we may know the power of his resurrection. See, the resurrection isn't merely the step into the next life. It is that. It isn't merely a, a theological construct. It is that. But there is power there, life-changing power, because it's a union with Jesus Christ. And Paul desired that he would experience that, and then he calls us to imitate him in that desire. It also says, though, that Paul says that we are to desire to share in the sufferings of Christ, even unto death. And so, therefore, if sufferings come upon us, we shouldn't condemn ourselves. How many people think that if they are sick or suffering, they don't have enough faith, or there's something wrong with them? No. The sufferings can be a precious gift of God. If the world hates you, know that they hated him first. And, of course, they will hate the followers of Jesus. So when sufferings come because we love Jesus, see that as a grace. Now, the world thinks that that's totally backwards, but the world's the one that's off the tracks, not us. Okay, so step one was recognizing that we live in a world of bad witnesses. We've got to be careful. Sometimes we're blind to that. Number two, we recognize the way we ourselves have failed in the past maybe even done just as bad as the rest around us. Number three, recommit ourselves in the right direction. Focus on what it is we are to focus on, all those things Paul said. And then he gives us step four and five, that one thing we must do. Forgetting what lies behind, we are to strain forward to the upward call, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting and learn from our past, Forgive it, learn from it, but then turn forward. That's conversion. Metanoia is turning. We turn and press onward, strain forward, obedient, doing the works that he has called you to do by grace for his glory, not focusing on ourselves, but on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And also, in, in forgetting and learning from our past, keep in mind, Paul tells us, be at peace with all people if possible. Now, we can forgive other people, but we are not in control of them. So don't beat up on yourself if you forgive someone and they won't forgive you. You do not have control over that person's heart. Pray the Holy Spirit to soften their heart. But if that person won't forgive you, don't beat up on yourself for it. A person could take these verses and, and find themselves in anxiety with these issues that Paul calls us to set aside and press onward. It sounds like, you know, the, uh, a lot of effort. Um, but a couple things, the verse directly before this section, he was calling us to rejoice. This is done in a spirit of joy, recognizing that this is all a gift of Christ. But second of all, recognizing that any of this that we do, we do by the power of grace. It is a gift. And so how do we carry out these five things 
It's really a matter of prayer, laying ourselves before Jesus, helping him to see the ways that we have failed, asking him to help us set those things aside, and then asking us to help us to keep focused forward on these goals to which our life should be aimed, not towards self-made goals, but on the goals that Christ gives us so that we can grow closer to him, know him, gain him, and experience that intimate relationship with him. Jim, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Marcus, and see you next year. All the rest of you, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.